sorry I'm late. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, well, uh, so yeah, this is going to be recorded. So if anybody doesn't want to be preserved, please let Karen know. <laughs> uh, I just want to acknowledge that we're meeting on unceded land as well. So we should all take a second and just acknowledge that too. Uh, so, uh, you can't please, what do they call this thing? You can't please all the people all of the time? Something like that. You can't please everybody all of the time. So, uh, I kind of thought this would be more of a, a discussion than a presentation. I don't have like slideshows behind me. I don't really want to like show pictures of my work and that sort of stuff. I just want to talk about what it's like as a disabled artist to make work for, uh, able-bodied and disabled audiences as well. So a bit of background for people who don't know my work. I'm, I'm based in Wylop. I've got a, a studio in the ArtSource building. And for the past maybe four years, I guess four years, I've, I've started to make work about my experience of disability, pri primarily being a wheelchair user. Uh, and I sort of, I started doing that because I was a bit bored of making the work I was making previously, which was mainly, like, had aesthetic concerns, so I did a lot of painting, drawing, things like that, and I was making these objects that were beautiful objects. I mean, I'm not saying that they were beautiful, but I'm, like, that was my intent, to make something that is aesthetically pleasing. And then when I talked to curators or other people about my work, they'd ask me, like, what's your work about? And I'd be like, pretty colors my shapes I didn't I didn't have anything to sort of pin it on and that kind of frustrated me for a while as well I kept thinking that I should like a, like as an, like my idea of an artist was somebody that created work that had a meaning for people and would convey a message and I think the beautiful thing about art is you can convey meanings and messages without being didactic, you know, without over-explaining it and without having to say it in words. I mean, as a visual artist, like, I'm, I think it's great, like, when people write about their work and write about it really well, but I prefer my work to be sort of standalone and anything I write about it to be sort of abstract. Uh, yeah, so I had all these thoughts and all these feelings about making work and, like, why am I, why am I doing it and what's the point in doing what I'm doing? And I talked to a friend of mine who was sort of mentoring an artist who was mentoring me at the time and he said to me that basically what I just said that like great art tells a story or has something like a meaning behind it and he said that you've got a story to tell that people want to hear uh, built in and I was like well, what are you talking about and it was like your disability like basically just try and make something about that and that was kind of like a light bulb moment for me. I hadn't really, well, no, that's not true. I had thought about it before, but I'd thought if I was making work, like as a disabled artist making work about disability, I thought that's basically prostituting myself in a way. You know, I'm giving people what they expect and I kind of didn't want to do that. I shied away from it for years and years. But then when my friends said it to me, for some reason it all sort of flipped and turned on its head and 
I thought, yeah, that's a, a great idea. And then I started to sort of think about the experiences that I've had as a disabled person. And to, I talked to my partner a lot about it as well. And we were, we were away on holiday in Europe at the time. And I just started to have all these ideas, like mainly like around uh, access and traveling and negotiating public spaces. And I saw a work uh, in documented by an artist, an older artist called Bruce Newman, Norman, I, can't, I can never pronounce his name right, but he, he was an artist that sort of made these works, like probably some of his most famous works, the corridor works, and he'd set up, he'd, the first one he made was like a corridor in his studio and it was super slim and you had to turn on your side to get through it and as you went down it there was videos, there was uh, television screens at one end and you could see uh, yourself approaching and yourself receding with two cameras set up. And I loved that idea. I thought that was really cool. And I thought, but I thought I could steal it basically and, and put it into my own practice. So I made a work which is probably my first sort of big work about disability called Hostile Infrastructure. And that was at Testing Grounds in NAM. And that work was basically a long corridor that people went down in a wheelchair and from the outside it looked sort of big and black and sort of skeletal it was about i think it was about 22 or 23 meters long and so you looked at it from the outside and you're like mm, it's just a corridor like what's the big deal and then yeah I, my intent was for people to go down using a manual chair and as they started going down this corridor the walls and the ceilings ever so slightly started to, to taper and compress the participant until they reached the very end and are sort of wedged in the doorway. And it was designed in a way that if they, when they were wedged, it would just sort of give a little bit and they'd be able to like push themselves through. And I think what I wanted from that was to give people a taste of what it's like to be in a chair and to like you couldn't like when I'm when I'm, when I'm in a when I'm sort of in my chair and I'm going around in the world I'm always looking at like the I was doing it today as I was coming from my studio in free I was like looking at the footpath because it's all bumpy and like you've got to sort of navigate around obstacles and sometimes you'll find you're so focused on the immediate thing in front of you that you don't see the giant sandpit that's coming in the distance and that's kind of the experience that I wanted people to to feel. So this this corridor, it had like gravel on the floor as well, and there was like flashing lights. So there was a lot going on, all to kind of distract you away from the fact that it was getting smaller and smaller. So my idea was people would go down, they'd find it, you know, a lot of people haven't used a chair before, and they'd find it difficult to push over this surface. And I purposefully got one that was a little bit uh, knackered, you know, so it was harder to push, to sort of like emulate like adaptive equipment that gets used quite a lot. Like if you look at people's chairs, if you were going around and seeing people's chairs, they're always sort of like a bit bunky, you know, unless they're brand new. There's like uh, after f like like modifications that they've made themselves, you know, or things have got damaged and not fixed properly because you've not had the tools. So anyway, people were going using this crappy chair and going down and then getting stuck and I didn't tell people that they were going to get stuck or that it was going to be difficult they just thought it was like going to be an easy experience 
And what I wanted to see was how people navigated that pinch point. So what I found, because I, I watched a lot of people go through and I had people filming it as well, so I had like data to analyze afterwards. And you found that people had, I think it was like three responses. So they'd either go down the tunnel, they'd get wedged and they'd panic, and then they'd get out of the chair and sort of like push it backwards up the tunnel, saying, oh, I'm sorry, I've scratched the paint, because this whole thing was painted on <laughs> a nice gradient as well. I, was, I wanted it to get scratched and damaged. Uh, so yeah, you'd have these people that would do that, and then you'd have people that would get out and just sort of pull it through from the other side, like, and then get back in it and wheel themselves back to their entryway. Actually, no, sorry, there was four, four different things. So, there'd be, or then there would be people that would get themselves wedged and then reverse awkwardly and try and keep trying to turn around. But it was designed so the only place you could turn around was right back at the entrance. So they'd be sort of bumping around, going backwards. <laughs> And then the final one was, as I said before, like if you pushed a little bit harder and had your hands on the wheels and not on the rims, because if your hands were there, they'd get crushed between your wheelchair and the walls, it would give a little bit and they'd scrape some paint off the walls. And I found that maybe, I think it was probably a pretty even split between that. It was like, I think it was like maybe 30% actually went through how I thought they would, and then the rest was sort of an even split between somehow getting out or pushing it backwards another way. And I, like, I think it was, I think it was successful, but something that I was considering as I was making it on a very limited budget was like other access needs, and I'm like thinking, am I limiting? who can experience my work by making work about my own experience of disability and should I do that? Is that, you know, like, is it, worth, is it worthy to exclude people to get a, a point across? And I think that's something that I've kind of struggled with a lot in what I'm making and it's kind of like made me sort of second guess what I'm doing, especially as now we sort of talk more and more about making work accessible and like meeting all, all these different criteria which is great like I, I wish I could make everything that I make accessible to everybody but then when you are making work that's critiquing one particular aspect of accessibility namely using a wheelchair and navigating in the world it's kind of it's it seems like it's very difficult then to sort of incorporate absolutely everything maybe it's not difficult maybe i'm not smart enough to have figured out uh, a way to do that yeah so i did that work again at the at the last biennale in in Fremantle, but i made it bigger and i sort of changed some aspects of it i had uh, an audio description that people who uh, people who are vision impaired could sort of go down and, and have that like my annoying voice in their ears uh, describing the work a little bit but then there was there's still limitations like if you can't you I'm well no sorry I should say that I, I also uh, 
did a lot of research into different wheelchairs, power, power assist chairs, powered chairs, different sizes of wheelchairs, bariatric wheelchairs. Does anyone know what a bariatric wheelchair is? So those are like the super, super wide ones for, for bigger people. So obviously, if someone comes to my work and they're in like a bariatric chair and it, it like goes to a point, a pinch point, like they're not going to be able to experience it in the same way. So I made this work, that, um, when I made this work again, it was wide enough to get a bariatric chair down and a big power assist chair, but then there was an intersection point in the center. So instead of having one tunnel, I had two tunnels that crossed over. And I think one of them was, so they, it was a lot bigger. One, the smallest tunnel was like 30 something meters long and the largest tunnel was nearly 70 meters long. And where they, and these, the proportions were taken from the, like, the old and new traffic bridge in Fremantle because part of the Biennale like, ethos is to be site specific and site responsive in a way and my work was located between those so I thought that's a nice thing to, to kind of echo in the proportions of this structure but then it also it allowed me to like sneakily build in these other access needs like I didn't I didn't make it explicit to anybody I just I made sure that the invigilators, well, hopefully I, I made my producer talk to the invigilators, so hopefully they did, um, and uh, sort of make it clear that if someone was in a bigger chair, they could go down and then, you know, still get the view that everyone else is getting of the river in the background, uh, and still the experience of things narrowing and the lights and everything, but then they could go back out the other entrance, you know. Uh, but then... I remember Jeremy Smith saying to me as well, like, what about people with shorter arms? Like, how can we use the chair and that sort of thing? So I didn't, I didn't address that in that work. And I kind of, I think I maybe missed a trick a little bit doing that because I think what I'm going to do next time I do this, I'm going to do it one more time and then I'm going to say, that's it, because I don't want to keep making the same thing over again. But I'm going to have... Hopefully, if I get the funding, I'm going to have like power assist chairs that people can use as well that are designed to uh, to fit in the thing and fit in the tunnels. So people that can't push a chair, they can still have a go. But then there's all things like uh, like if I'm if I'm talking about like a neurodiverse audience, like. This work is quite confronting, you know, it's claustrophobic by design, it's, it can get quite warm in there, the lights are kind of intense, so I'm trying to think of a way that I can do it and then have like quieter presentations of it as well. <coughs> so that's kind of like where I'm at with this sort of stuff, and I just thought I'd ramble on for a bit and maybe we could just have a chat about ideas and what we think about that idea of making work that critiques one uh, one aspect of accessibility that but also at the same time not encompassing everything so I might just throw it out and see what you guys you will think so do you think there's like a universal perfection where there is a variation of this work that does work for everyone that you could possibly imagine? I mean, theoretically, yeah. But I mean, 
like at the same time it's so difficult to try and think of everything and I think I think that's you know that old adage like perfection is the enemy of good like I think if you're always striving to make it completely perfect you're never actually gonna do it mm. and I think it's more important for me to to do it you know and then then, then make sure that it's ticking every single box so that's I don't think that's for me it's not an authentic way to work you know Tricky. Hmm. I liked how you brought an extra tunnel in for the bariatric chair. Yeah. And that was that was a cool way of getting around that. And I'm wondering if you set it up like as a wheel, so that it was all different tunnels converging, and then you could specialize each one of those tunnels as you need to make it accessible. True. I mean, I have thought about things like that. I mean, it's then your material cost is like <laughs> like astronomical, and like all the architecture that goes into those things, and the structural engineering becomes a big factor. But I think also one one part of me doesn't want to do something like that because I feel then I'd be segregating experiences, and I think that's something that that I have like that's something that's something that kind of annoys me like the whole idea of like special schools and special classes and like like I had I'd much prefer to have uh, like a desegregated way of doing it but I, I just don't know how to do it unless it's something I mean like in an ideal world what I would like is to build this thing maybe permanently like somewhere at an institution and then have it, it would be like a mammoth feat of engineering, but have it so the walls will move. Mm -hmm. So as you, as you, as a participant comes to have a go, if they've got their own chair or if they've got whatever other sort of different access needs, you know, if they can't bend down too much or if they're just a bigger person, then the work will will shift to fit their form, but still give that experience that I'm looking for, that sort of compression. But that would be like, I don't know how much that would cost. Mm -hmm. oh, Did you yes. mention light sources before you were looking at? Sorry? Looking at the way you wanted to bring light sources. Oh, I have, I have used lights before. So mm -hmm. the, like these works, because they're quite dark in there, like especially the really long ones that are like the really long one I did, like in the center, if you didn't have lights, it was just like almost sensory deprivation, you know, like you could, especially at, at nighttime, you couldn't really see where the exits were. Just off the th strength of what we did with Steve this morning, you could look at using projectors as light sources, which is going to add another dimension to your corridor, but that's what I thought about. Yeah. I was actually thinking of going, were you at the sensory? Yeah. I was, yeah, thinking that that might be a way of kind of getting the accessibility in there because you could get the normal able bodies or whatever and bring them down into a state where like we were blindfolded mm. as well. So there's a kind of an equaling out maybe that could be done and there's a tailorability as well where people were interacting. 
mm. with it, but it, I mean, it changed the face of your work quite dramatically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something else of like I'm thinking about. Like, if it's, it almost seems I'm getting to a point where if I change it more, then it's not, it's not, it's even not going to do what I want it to do, or it's not going to feel like my work like yep. and it's I think that's really tough like when you're making work that people experience like I'm working on another project at the moment that should have been should have been presented in next wave in 2020 but because of covid obviously it got postponed it's called dead ends and detours which is great because it's it's actually been postponed three times it's like the <laughs> most aptly named project ever uh, and that work is uh a wheelchair obstacle course again like sense of your theme and it's it's basically an isa symbol so i assume you're familiar with isa symbols they're the wheelchair man that you see on disabled parking the blue badge sort of symbol so i've basically made a big one of those on using platforms so i've got meter by meter platforms that are fabricated that are about this high on like self-leveling feet and I think there's 14 or 16 of those make up the body of the ISA symbol. And each of them have a printed graphic on them of uh, my body. Because I just thought, why not? That's like a window dressing thing, I guess. So it's like bits of my body and it's all like mapping across them and forming like different shapes. And then on top of that, because uh, I like to throw lots of stuff at the work, there are like little rocks, but like really badly made little rocks with like things uh, very badly spray painted on them. So like lots of, lots of words basically. So so the idea is people go over this platform, over this section of platforms, and the rocks that are on top get uh, more frequent. So you start off and it just feels like, this. what's the big deal? It's like quite easy and then it gets progressively harder to navigate between these uh, rocks. And you get to the head and it's a big circle. It's a sandpit. And so if you've ever tried to push through uh, sand on a wheelchair, you know it's super, super difficult. Even like grass is super hard, but it's not actually a sandpit. It's like maybe that much sand uh, on, on a board. So if you actually are brave enough to go into the sample you find you'll be able to get through it not not super easily but a lot easier than if you were going through a big like deep sand at the beach but that's kind of like again the the hand that you see the, the the real idea of the work is that it's it's a game so like when i originally thought about it I was kind of targeting the I guess like the monster energy crowd that you see at festivals and that sort of stuff like um, specifically like the big dudes are like I am so tough and I can do anything and like nothing will stop me because I'm a big white man you know like that sort of energy and I really wanted to like play with that idea of them seeing this as just something to overcome and it's easy. So the idea is before they uh, even get in the chair, they have to sign all these like release forms that I've designed and uh, 
I go through like a little checklist of like like an OHS sort of thing. Like if you've ever done like a white card, it's like got that sort of vibe. And then they have to wear a helmet and they have to wear knee pads and elbow pads and stuff. So I'm gearing them up for like a super physical experience. And then they've got to hit this uh, buzzer to start. And when they hit this buzzer, it assigns them a random game name. So Hot Wheels 420. Like it's <laughs> going to be like a list of words and a list of numbers and it'll pair them together and then that'll be your name and then it'll flash on this big screen 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, countdown and then go. And so they go, they like push really fast up onto this. And if you like, if you've ever seen someone like try and race in a chair that doesn't use a chair, they're always like arms really, really going for it and keeping the body quite uh, static. So I think it'd be quite funny to watch. <laughs> and then they'll get up onto this platform and they'll go through and they'll do it really quick and then you know they'll bang into it and it'll be like things will get broken and damaged and they'll go all the way back around and they'll hit the buzzer and it will stop and it will give them their time. But the time is, oh sorry, I should say, when they're going, the time is flashed up on this leaderboard and the time will start to go super, super fast and then slow down and then go backwards and faster and backwards and it'll be like glitching backwards and forwards. So when they go and hit that buzzer, it's a completely random time. So it doesn't matter how well they do it or how fast they are, that... Uh, that time is taken completely out of their hands and it would just be like a completely random thing. So then it will, there'll be like a leaderboard sort of thing as well, flash up the best times. But what I'm really saying with that is like it isn't, it isn't really like a level playing field. So no matter how hard you try, there's always going to be people for whatever reason that have it easier or are better off than you and I guess I'm sort of just I don't know like using using that idea about like privilege and how that relates to this disabled community to hopefully make people think a bit deeper so the idea is these you know like I said the monster energy crowd they will do it and then be frustrated and then hopefully they'll go home and they'll think about what they've done maybe a little bit more and then hopefully that will, I mean, this is all like ifs and buts. I don't know if it was going to work like this, but hopefully it will make them a little more empathetic as they move forwards and they go like into other interactions that they have. But there's heaps of holes in this as well. Like I know, I know it's not going to work exactly as intended and it's still, the same thing again like I'm um, am I going to be excluding people in this work and should I be a bit more sensitive about that but then at the same time I think if I make it the way that I make it I'm talking because I want to be talking to the people that aren't sympathetic already I want to be talking to the people that don't experience these sort of things and by designing an experience for them then hopefully it's going to have more of a, a real a real world impact. What have wheelchair users who have done it experienced? Well, nobody's done it yet. Oh, not that one. Sorry. The, oh, um, the tunnel. Uh, well, a lot of people that like friends that I know that have, that use wheelchairs have done the tunnel, especially the one in Melbourne. 
they were like, it was too easy. <laughs> like I knew what was happening, but because they've, I guess, like me, they've got a slightly different way of looking at these things. So they're doing that whole like checking the surroundings and like seeing like uh, how easy places it's are to navigate. So it's not, it isn't that hard for them, you know. But you know, I don't think it. I don't think I could make something hard for them. No. Not, not like that. Yeah. That's, I don't know. I mean, I could, but I mean, then it'd be like it's going to be hard for me to yeah, do yeah. as well. <laughs> and how do you speak about the work and promote the work without giving away the reveal of the work? Uh, well, I don't. I don't really do that much promotion. Hey. <laughs> I, I mean, like. Leading up to a project like that, I'll be like hitting my Instagram stories pretty hard with like little sneak peeks, but I don't, I never have like any text in that and I don't talk about it and I don't have like previews or anything like that. I mean, after the fact, I'll document it and it's on my website. So if people want to, they can, they can see, but I'm thankfully uh, not well known enough that it matters you know so I think when I do this work again because I'm when I do the tunnels again hopefully it's going to be in uh, Hobart sort of this time a bit earlier than this time next year um, people won't know the work there at all so there'll be a completely new audience and maybe that sort of surprise factor again yeah mm. Back to the second project what was it called Dead Ends and Detours, and Detours. Um, you kind of evoked this image of, of the strong man hitting the thing in a muscle contest, you know. Maybe because you're trying to target a privileged kind of audience, why not emphasise that and actually have them have to qualify to participate? That's a good idea. Somehow. Well, we are going to do like a ticketing sort of thing with it, even though tickets will be free. Like I don't, like that's another thing about my work, like if, that I want to make it accessible so I'll never charge a price. Like, so I don't want to make money off it. They could qualify through strength or height. Yeah, yeah, by some, you know, some Good teeth or something. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have to be something weird and a bit subversive like that. Like Maybe it's an Australian cultural thing. I had experience like, you know, when I was living north of Devon, I told you. And like something like Sideshow Alley or a small fair would come to the town. It would stay shut for the first day and just be open to people living with a disability mm. and their support workers. But the amazing thing is all those big men that worked and travelled with that were the men that would help lift the wheelchairs on and off all the rides so that everything was just like massively accessible to everybody. Mm. So... Australian sort of wankers, maybe. No, I mean, like, I don't, you know, like, I know I'm making this work with kind of like critiquing accessibility, but I find in, like, in my own life, people always wanted to help me. Like, I don't, especially in Australia, like, I grew up in the UK and I found it a lot uh, less welcoming for people with disabilities. Than I found the opposite, that I was going from just like a rural kid that maybe just saw a smattering of people with Down syndrome at the public pool every now and again and that was it, mm -hmm. to suddenly my whole life being about it. That's cool. Yeah. Something you said earlier resonated when you said you didn't particularly make work for disabled people or you didn't work within disability. I wonder why we, I hardly ever make work about being gay. I wonder why we do that. 
maybe because we're having a lived experience and we're a bit like, eh, I live with this every day, I don't want to necessarily make work about it, I don't know. Yeah. Just, you said that and I was like, oh, sh I do the same thing. I mean, but I've, I've changed. I, I mean, that was, I guess that's old Bruno, like new Bruno is like fully engaging with that because yeah. there's so much there. Like I've got so many ideas in notebooks from, about like different works that engaged with disability and like I think what I'm now interested in making is more video work because I've done quite a lot of that recently and really interesting and really like the idea of having something that freights on a USB drive rather than like three trucks or something uh, and I want to make work about like staring as well like because that's something that people who are physically different often engage with well often experience like if you don't look like everybody else and people are going to stare all the time and like almost feel like they have permission to stare as well and i've read like a few disability scholar scholars that talk about the violence of stare as well and how that is like a like an aggressive act and i don't know if i i mean i understand that but I don't know if I 100% agree with it because then I think about like kids, like I've got a little boy and so a lot of my time is spent like at parks and going to daycares and all that sort of stuff and doing, you know, traditional kid shit. And when I'm out with him, he's like, pull daddy, pull daddy, like come, come like climb on the, uh, the play equipment with me or like push me on the swing and all that sort of stuff. And so I get out of my chair and I do those sorts of things. And before I know it, I've got like a circle of toddlers around me all just sort of like, what's going on? What's happening? And then they ask all those questions and they stare. And that's human nature. Like you can't, we're kind of hardwired to notice things that are different, right? It's like an, from an evolutionary perspective, like, our monkey brains are saying thing like they're looking for symmetry you know which is like I used to study zoology so I've like done a bit of evolutionary biology stuff and I know some of the theory behind it but basically like this I mean I don't know if this is a distasteful fact but it's it's like something that's taught in in these sort of studies and it's like saying that basically when you're looking for a partner to mate with to produce children, you look like your back of your brain is telling you to look for symmetry because that means uh, better genetic fitness, which will then hopefully pass on to your offspring. So that's why classically pretty people, if you like split their face down and join it back up, they don't look super weird because they're pretty symmetrical. Uh, but it also makes someone like me, who's got one leg longer than the other, completely unsymmetrical. And so then I'm, I guess, focused on and it's easy for people to sort of pick me out of the crowd. And so then they stare and then, like, but the kid, like, like I was saying before, like kids stare and that's like a completely honest response. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea, going back to what I was saying before about the violent stare, like I don't know if that is, like I understand why people have that response. Like sometimes it really pisses me off if someone's staring at me, like I'm like, oh, like I just don't, 
I don't feel like being the centre of attention right now. Mm. Yet, I have to take a deep breath and go, well, you know, it's not personal. It's just because I look different to what they expect. And they're not staring in a malicious, sort of violent way. They're just staring because it's different, mm. you know. Of that group, when you look up and there's a ring of toddlers, how many toddlers are also there with their dads? Oh, no, they're all just there on their own. No. <laughs> Most of them just think, well, like, oh gosh, a father frolicking with a child, we'd never see that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, but I think it's more that, like, they don't, like, their mums and dads, most of them, I guess, because disability people like me are still a, small, a minority, are always going to be a minority of the population. So they're just not exposed to that sort of thing. I think what's interest, what's what I find interesting is when the mums or the dads then, uh, when the, when the, when the child will say, "What happened?" or like, "Mummy, mummy, that man's got no legs," or something like that, and they'll go, "Shh," and like pull them away, and then make something up in their heads, like, "Oh, he had an accident," or. You know, like just something like that. So rather than like asking me or getting the child to engage, they'll pull them away. And I get, I get it if like maybe the kids are too young to understand. But I think if they're asking that sort of question, then they're old enough for me to respect them to enough to answer, like, uh, like intelligently. Like I don't have, you know, obviously I'm not going to use like medical terms but I can talk to them about why I'm different and how that's not a scary thing you know and sometimes I do that sometimes I will have those discussions with those little kids and it's hilarious because they'll ask the same question again and again and again and usually it's like three or four times and I have to like keep thinking of different ways to say the same thing <laughs> and then it'll get to a point and I'll have said something and be like oh okay <laughs> and then just move on like it's not it is a complete non-issue for them like mm -hmm. especially if I am not weird about it and the parents aren't weird about it it just suddenly becomes this is part of who this person is and it doesn't matter it goes into their little catalogue yep mm -hmm. that's what that yeah um, yeah um, I work mainly in theatre which is like a deeply inaccessible place on multiple levels but I um, often have worked with a company in Sydney, Earth, and Scott Wright is the director of Earth. And, um, you know, he, he's just, he's kind of changed, changed itself because I feel like self and, you know, theatre is rigorously strict and, like, there's an etiquette and the door's shut and you're locked out and the show will happen and there's no direction. And he's always kind of come to it with this great kind of ethos of, like, well... I'm not going to have an inclusion plan because I can't include everybody into that plan and nothing's going to work. So I'm not going to have one, but I'm going to go to every degree that I have to make this experience for somebody, anybody who arrives. And so it's this wonderful thing. I mean, it's deep chaos sometimes, but he will stop shows. Mm -hmm. If a kid, like, it was, we were doing shows at the um, museum years ago and... Um, a little boy arrived and he couldn't handle ceilings and it was like in the where the whale hangs so it's like pretty full on ceiling and uh, 
Scott, like, you know, there's like 300 people in the audience. Scott kind of stopped it. They'd gone out on the street. They'd got a, um, a um, witch's cone. Like Scott had put that on this kid's head and then like kind of brought him through and took him backstage where there was like a the shipping container. So they could sit in this shipping container and they like watched the whole show from that. <laughs> but that is kind of, that is, and that, you know, it's not going to work every single time. But it's kind of changed the way I work a little bit because I go, like, I think about shows that I make and I go, fuck, like, I don't know, to, to try and kind of approach it in that way that you're trying to approach it, I, as an independent, I also can't, like, financially do that often and, you know, like, sometimes at Pika and places like that, it's literally like, well, you can have your Iceland show and that's it. So yeah. But there's something about Scott's way of kind of just going, well, fuck it. Like if the show is a bit broken up that night or what are we, let's just let it go. And like it's an experience. It's not exactly the same experience, but it's, um, we can't, like he kind of says, I can't, I can't do it for everybody. So I'm not, and I'm going to just work in the moment to make it happen. And it's kind of great. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, for me, I think that stuff that's way more interesting than like the. Uh, I mean, I know like organize bigger organizations and institutions and festivals <laughs> have to have like like really thought out action plans and ways of dealing with uh, lots of different people. But for me, I always find like that approach when I receive it personally, like say I went, say if I go to uh, go to the theatre and they're like, these are the spots here, this is the, and like it's taped up and it's like, it looks super obvious this is the spot where you go, this is the wheelchair spot, or like if you go to a festival, like a music festival, it's the same sort of thing, it's here, you go here and you don't move, like I find that horrible, like it's, because it's then, it's separating you from everybody else and it's making a bit of a like a fuss and you find that people well I find that myself and other people with disabilities like you don't want to be you're already like in the public eye you know like people are already looking and when you go to these things you don't want to then have something else on top and, I've, and that sort of that sort of stuff makes me feel super anxious and I know it's there like, it's irrational because I know it's there to make my life easier, but at the same time, I'm like, go away, don't hold the door open for me, you know, like all, the, all this sort of stuff. Like, don't put me in the special spot, I'll just make do with what I have. But then, I guess, without those things, then maybe I don't experience these events or these shows. Mm -hmm. And it's like that, there's like a lot of tension there. It's like, I know that they're there to help me, but then. I don't want it, <laughs> you know? or I don't want it like that. I'd, I'd much prefer it to be like this haphazard, chaotic, half-assed approach to it. Like and it's a, pretty wild. Yeah, I, <laughs> like we just built a show in the Fremantle Town Hall earlier this year. Like under, it was kind of throughout the whole thing, and you had to go down the stairs under the stage, and like there's no access. There's not even a lift. Like mm. you can't get up. You know. <laughs> Got with had people on his back and like <laughs> carrying through the town, but it was it was so 
because of who he is too as a human. Like mm. there's just no like this is just going to be fucking great. It's going to be wild. You're going to have a time right now, and it it was, and it always, and it was for the city of Frio. Yeah. There's like so much red tape, and just watching him be just like, nah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah. I got this. But just removing barriers as he goes yeah. along, <laughs> because the whole building is a barrier. Yeah. Like literally, the whole building is a barrier. But because of that, his argument was like, well, unless it's in a moment like this. These people are never going to see these spaces. Mm. So this is actually like the only way your heritage laws stop me knocking out a wall. Mm. So this is the only way we can actually do it. Yeah. It's true. Like this anarchy in it that's pretty great. Like how's that? Like cause the other thing is like how this was marketed. Like mm. with that show, like how does he? Does he? Put the wheelchair accessibility sign so on there, or City of Freya had a thing on that one where if. Um, when you booked, you just had to say whether you were in a wheelchair. And so if yeah. there was a wheelchair, we knew. Yeah. Is he getting a following, like a, a particular audience coming and seeking him out for this benefit? I mean, no, but like, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Could maybe. Could be interesting. I'd, I'd crash his show just to see <laughs> what do you do with me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like you become part of the performance. Yeah. I can jump back to your experience as a festival goer or going to like a live music event or something like that. How would you like the experience to run without saying this is a raised platform for wheelchair users or this is a a space allocated at the front so your sight lines aren't restricted? I honestly don't know. Thought about, I mean, I know it's there for a reason, like in the sight lines. I mean, like, I've been on, like, to events doing both versions, so being in the, the specific wheelchair zone and then being in the crowd with everybody else, and they've both got benefits. Like, obviously, if I'm at the special wheelchair place then it's a better view it's less crowded and all that sort of stuff but then at the same time you feel a bit disconnected whereas if you're uh, with everybody else in the crowd then terrible view lots of bums in your face uh, but you know you feel sort of part of it and you get those experiences and interactions that you wouldn't get otherwise but in terms of like how would you do that I think maybe one way to do it would be to have like rather than rather than like having that experience to the back or off the side or near the sound desk or something like that, what about having it to like side of stage, you know, so then instead of being segregated and feeling like an afterthought, you're you segregated and you feel like a VIP. <laughs> like how cool would that be? Like and I don't think it would be that, like I've been... I used to play a lot of music and I've been on stages and I know that those, especially the bigger stages, like they have provision for that sort of thing and usually it's just filled with like people looking at the phones and <laughs> sort of stuff. Like, so there is space there for that and it could be built in and maybe that's one way of doing it. But mm. I say um, I work at Perth Festival and sometimes we look at venues that aren't specifically built as performance venues 
And so a lot of the accessibility needs to be revisited and often that is you're like putting in some kind of like platform or scaffolding structure that looks very alien to mm. the rest of the space. Mm. So it's a real challenge to try and find a solution that feels natural and integrated. I think newer buildings, newer builds are doing that. Like I sat on a, I sat on a panel for Whopper or a panel committee or something, some sort of disability thing because I get asked to do a lot of these things and that was about the new buildings there and which specifically when I was doing it, it was talking about access for students because as probably many of you know there's a, like a deficit of uh, like creative arts professionals that have disabilities and what they've done with their staging is that that's all super accessible so you can access the stage from the side like in their main sort of like practice auditorium with like these nice ramps that go up to it and then all the balconies are accessible as well so there's maybe like two or three spots in the whole space that you couldn't get to if you're if, like using a wheelchair or if you had other sort of access needs but most of it is accessible and it's not I don't, like, I asked if it cost more, and I think it cost more in the design, but in the actual building of it, it was, like, a negligible amount. But, yeah, like you say, when you're working with older buildings, like, it has to be retrofitted, and it, it's always going to look out of place and a little bit weird, but I kind of like, I kind of like that aesthetic as well. It's more... It's more, for me, it's less about like what it looks like as where it is. Like if it's tucked away somewhere, then that's what, that's something that I'm not I'm not into. Does anyone else like have any questions about making work that's critiquing disability, but also being? I'm going to say with the, the institutional way of thinking about disability, both with medical institutions and arts institutions, it is about, um, yeah, putting us into boxes and kind of not giving us choice of how we consider ourselves in the world within our identities and the kind of access that we want. And I think something that's often missing from the access conversation is consent and like being able to have like, if we want to be carried off the chairs, that's our choice kind of thing. Um, stairs, not chairs. But um, I, I think that also is an issue with like, and I, I wondered if that was kind of something that you were facing Bruno in your practice was working with professional uh, presenting partners um, if it's if it's the pressure to create an experience that's accessible for anyone who wants to see it within a structure that's actually not allowing for just free-flowing conversation between anyone who wants to see it like you've got to have the product all ready to go and get that out as quickly as possible and have that turnover Whereas if we were kind of working in institutions where any audience member could just negotiate their access needs freely and there was just a very fluid process of doing that, would that same problem kind of be arising? Yeah, that's interesting. Like, I I mean, I haven't worked with many, I've only worked with a few institutions, so I'm not, maybe I'm not super qualified to answer that, but saying that, like, uh, I think it's I think it's 
something I think it's about the work right for one so obviously those tunnel works they're like it's kind of like one doing one thing basically it's talking about accessibility uh, for wheelchair users but I'm working on a project at the moment that is talking more about uh, I guess like body image and like we all have bodies right we're all like one thing that everybody's got in common. So this this project is using like the game Heads, Bodies, Legs. Do you know that? Or Exquisite Corpse, you might know it as. So it's like a drawing game where you have like a sheet of A4 paper and it's folded three times and I'll draw a head and I'll pass it to Ella and she'll draw the body and then she'll pass it to Karen and I'll draw the legs and then you fold it out and it's like, way we've made something ugly. Like, <laughs> great. Uh, and so I'm, I'm making a work with an institution that's kind of loosely based on that, but it's like three-dimensional and there'll be building involved. And the person that I'm working closely with on this from the organisation is super into like all the access stuff around it. So she is great because she's been doing this for years and years. She's got heap, even though she doesn't have a disability, she's got heaps more experience in this field than me. And she's been... She keeps like niggling me to like do things and make it better, to make it more accessible. And like, oh, more work, but at the same time, it's pushing me to think about things in a different way. So, for example, these what we do well, essentially what we're doing is making all these big sculptures, and they're out of foam blocks, and people can join them together and make their own sort of heads, bodies, legs figure. But it's like you know, everywhere and multi-sensory and all this sort of stuff. And she was taught, she's sort of pushed me to think about the material choice that I'm using. So it's got to be like nice and soft and it's got to feel good and like uh, got to be super durable because people are going to bite it and all that sort of stuff. So like I had to think about like changing material choice because of what she said. And then she's also talking about scale because uh, these figures were going to be like, average person height but now we've got we're going to have a range of them with different sizes but they still all sort of fit together so for people that maybe don't have as much uh, motor control or as much strength they can still operate it and then we're, we're also going to do like mini tabletop versions for people that can't get out of the chairs so then they can still have the same experience but on a smaller scale and then there's like a different version of it where if you don't want to interact with the sculptures, you can just do it with uh, pens and, and draw, and that becomes another accumulative work. So I think it's it's like it's about the work that that you're making. Like some work is not going to be accessible to everybody just because of the nature of it, but it's also some institutions I'm finding push you harder to think more inclusively about what you're doing and I learn like so much from those conversations and I think it, it well I know it's going to make the work better and stronger because if you can you know the more people you engage with something I think that it's like a it's like a good measure of the success of the work but then it's also respect for your audience as well which is something that I'm starting to think more and more about like I guess when I started making like experiential works, part of me was wanting to like provoke, you know, like po like poking the bear sort of thing, like to get like a visceral response. But now I'm thinking more about like something that's kind of like 
a bit more comforting, a bit more friendly, a bit more fun. Yeah. Does that? Yeah. No, the inclusiveness obviously is a really. I mean, that's one of the best things that's kind of come from that. Um, the word like, I guess, the normalising of, of access in institutions. Um, but I, I guess I wonder, like, what it has done to the way that we think about access is, like you were mentioning before, the um, audio description technology and things. These are not just sort of different points on a checklist, but they're very personal experiences, aids like assistive technology when they're things that we use every day, they're very intimate to us. And I think yep. when when those decisions are kind of being like when they're when they're a part of the conversation of how work's happening, but the people who are actually going to be using them are not involved in that conversation because those decisions have already been made by the presenting people. That's, I think, it's it's not necessarily that it's a problem, but I, it, it removes the, the personal aspect of living with disability and that kind of, like, what you were talking about earlier, of your journey of coming to more confidently talk about, like, your experience with disability and your art. Like, that's a personal experience. It's not something that can sort of be, yeah, put into, like, a... It's not the same way of thinking about disability as the kind of writing or language you'd find on an access plan kind of thing. And so yeah. I think I think that's what I mean in terms of like, is that really what we're sort of um, coming across when it comes to these conversations happening in quite flattened ways rather than, even though it is with the goal of inclusion. Yeah. It's like stripping out the humanity a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess, you, I guess people get that from... That that would be like the parents pulling the kids away and being like, no, don't talk to them. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. kind of like begins then, and and maybe that's like just the upbringing that people have had to like make uh, to uh, like that distance exists because of people being like a bit afraid of conversations. Like yeah, like it's historically a bit of a taboo subject mm. as well, mm. you know? and it was for me growing up. Like I didn't. I went to a, a normal poor person school in the UK, like it didn't have any like uh, special uh, special classes or special uh, accommodations for, for, for me, so like I relied on my friends to sort of help me, and there was like heaps of stairs at this school as well, it was like pretty much all stairs, mm -hmm. it was like yeah, tower blocks and stairs and stairs everywhere, so like I'd constantly having to be like carrying my own chair upstairs or getting friends to help me carry my chair upstairs and that sort of thing. But that, I kind of, I think that I look back on that and even though the school shit, it was fun, like, because I had, there was that sense of camaraderie, like, mm -hmm. and that we were doing it anyway, you know, like it didn't, it didn't matter. And I think the more that we, the more that like, I think the more anything is formalised and quantified and like assigned like all these different metrics and KPIs and all that sort of blah blah language, it's like it it does strip out personality and the the uniqueness of experience. And I think that's something that I really don't I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose it in my work, and I don't want to lose it in like the community itself like there's something great about seeing someone's wheelchair with like 
the retrofit modification because the NDIS plan didn't go through in time. Like it's, you know, it can be sad and it can be beautiful at the same time. It's not, they're not mutually exclusive sort of things. Do you think this kind of levelling out of everything and the kind of, because often it feels so impersonal. Like it's just sort of like this is a one-size-fits-all, this is our, what we've organised, tick the box, we've done it now, we're good. But that it's in this culture of, there is a real fear of the conversation around it still and doing it wrong yeah. so then you'll get in you know you'll be seen to have done the bad thing but it actually just is this fear of actually being able to have a conversation and pushing through the kind of clunkiness of it mm -hmm. so we can kind of get through it to get to a point where it is actually done better mm. feels I like put it down to the massive over administration of everything and people want to apply like a big broad brush stroke and that just suits everybody and we seem to be going more and more to, towards that and not tailoring things around people's individual needs and there seems to be a real pushback against oh we can't do that it feels like we are in a moment of, of like across so many aspects like mm. it's come up in a few of these conversations where we are in this transition moment and people are having these conversations and trying but there is still a, a barrier of fear there mm -hmm. stopping it kind of getting yeah. to its next level almost i just i can't remember the name of the woman i can't remember the name of the festival but there's a disability arts festival in liverpool a few years ago and the director is a disabled woman, and I can't I can't remember her name. But in her like keynote speech, she talked about the idea that things are becoming worse for the left because we're so, and I might include myself as being pretty far left. Yeah. Uh, we're becoming so concerned with the language that we use and how we approach subjects that we're not actually affecting any meaningful change mm. and like that is actually serving the rights interests because we're, while we're all infighting about the right way to do things, they're all just laughing because mm. we can't get our shit together, <laughs> you know, like I can't remember, like I'll try and find I'll try and find a link to the, because it's probably my bookmarks on my laptop. I'll find a link to it and I'll put it up on the Colleen thing and you can mm. disseminate it. But she was way more articulate than I can ever be on that topic. But it's, I guess it's the same sort of thing. Like mm. it's... A friend of mine just made a work in um, Melbourne and he's a sound artist. And it was like a really, like it was a piece of noise, a noise work. And in the, um, Part of the festival was doing a um, a soft show, and he was like, "But like, it's a noise work, like it's whatever." And it was this really big moment for him as an artist, just going, well, "There's a whole range of human beings out there who can't access my work, mm. but by doing that, they're not experiencing the work as I created the work." But is that fine and worse? Like, I guess everyone is going to have that moment with their work and letting it go, so it can be. But he had that real response of wanting to fight for it. And he tried to do it. Well, could they, could we just like make a room, like it plays, but we just make a room far away? <laughs> like... It makes me think, like, 
that and this conversation and that in particular makes me think of a friend of mine that I had growing up who was severely had a severe phobia to white bread from like a particular brand Warburton's white bread he was terrified of it if you had it near him he would like you know Egypt is not running off and so I'm mentioning that because like if you think about strange things that people can be scared of and can make them not participate in the work that's pretty strange right like and and it can be absolutely anything so you never you're never going to make something that is going to be completely inclusive to absolutely everybody you know which is why I call this thing you can't please all everybody all the time because it's just a fact but I think it's like your friend in Melbourne actually having that epitome you know and maybe that shift in the way that he's thinking that's kind of what we're striving for right we're not striving to make everything super accessible all the time because it just can't happen but it's more that people that are making things are think at least thinking of it in the making stage and yeah. maybe so ne next time maybe he does a noise work he's like he'll be thinking about doing a softer version or having a volume control built in or that sort of stuff you know like and because it's kind of interesting like you're just like what if i'm making noise like if people don't like noise why would they come and see a noise work mm -hmm. but it's it's not as simple as that you know no. it's, it's, yeah um just coming at this from a completely different angle like i'm not an artist um um but Kara, so lovely um for her to invite me here. Um, I, I teach chair yoga and it, that in itself is a lovely inclusive thing. But then within the group, you know, there are some people who are hearing impaired, some people who are visually impaired, some people who even sitting in a chair um, for that long moving their upper body, that's too much for them. So I've, and especially during COVID times wearing masks for people who usually read my lips, um, it's been a challenge. Yeah, but yeah. And uh, and having to to know that it's okay that it maybe that person won't come back. It really sucks, but yeah, it's just the reality. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it often is like yeah. just, I guess if you're wearing masks constantly, if this was going to be something that we do forever mm. going forward, which it might be, yeah. then there will be strategies to cope with that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. But for example, people, um, I had a, a lady recently come and um, and she had MS and I really was so excited that she was there. And, but then afterwards she just said it was too much, I, I can't come back. And I was like so mad at myself for not providing that space for her. And, mm. But hopefully she found something that, that worked for her. Well, I mean, I'd say that's however terrible it is for her not mm -hmm. to enjoy it and not to come back it's probably a good thing for you because now the next time you do it and, yeah. and someone's got MS it's mm -hmm. going to change the way that you approach it yep. and that's all you can ask for really like mm -hmm. responding to a problem and then changing mm -hmm. behavior yeah. like yeah. I wouldn't feel bad mm -hmm. yeah. has anyone ever done any like audio descriptions for their work that's what's that. Yeah? Have you done them yourself? Uh, not that much, but if I'm like images, I'll always do it. Oh, audio description. Yeah, audio description. Yeah. Visual descriptions I've done on um, like on visual stuff that I've published and stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I, I know a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. 
I wouldn't be able to speak with experience or heaps of knowledge. I only mention it because I'm doing I'm doing an audio description for a work of mine at the moment, and I had the option to give it to the gallery, and they would sort it out with the professional audio describer, or I could find my own audio describer and get them to do it here. And I was like, well, actually, what if I want to do it? Because then it's then I'm like treating it as part of the art as well so i'm gonna what i'm gonna do this work has a sound as a, a score and so i'm gonna work the audio description into the score and it's gonna go for the whole length of the work as well so when you have the headphones on you still get to hear the music as well at the same time uh, and I, the reason i did that is because i've got a, a friend in victoria who's a vision impaired artist called Fayinda evie and she makes amazing work and she said one thing that's really annoyed her about the arts community is uh, the reliance on companies that do audio description uh, like professionally because she says what she finds is that the way that they treat the work is super dry and super dull and it kind of like flattens everything out and she says that now she refuses to work with those companies and she does it her, herself and so she's kind of inspired me to sort of start doing that and this is the first time I've done it and I find, I'm finding it really challenging because the work is like yeah. nine minutes and it sinks yeah. and it's there's not that much going on to talk about so I find I'm kind of rambling in my audio description because <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I I sort of have tapered uh, not tapered is the right word but because audio descriptions, they're useful for a lot of different communities for neurodivergent people if it's like processing visual information slowly. It's, it helps as well. And I think um, I started a bit more slowly with just doing um, image descriptions on social media photos and stuff like that. Because But I think over time I've learned that it is a skill. Mm. If you're going straight in with like a nine minute work, it's a bit harder than how you describe, you know, starting with like your profile picture on social media or something. And I find that it's a it's a skill that you learn over time. Um, and after a while, you sort of get to a point of understanding what it's like to describe just the important parts of something. Or, um, yeah, I think obviously spending time with blind communities makes a big difference in that. But um, I think it goes back to what you were saying about it just becoming like a thing that you think about as you're making rather than um, something that happens for access. It's sort of like when it's to the point where you're familiar with it as a form of experiencing the world, mm -hmm. just having audio descriptions, mm -hmm. and then you're a bit more familiar with how to implement that as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And for that mm -hmm. artists to be able to hear the audio description, yeah. like I've done theatre as an actor for a long time, and then it was not for years until I heard an audio description of a show. Mm -hmm. It was like, <laughs> what? Yeah. And then in was living in Sydney and we built a show and we got them to um, do the audio description for the dancers and then the dancers it was so amazing that the dancers all got so excited by the audio description that they redid a whole heap of the show because of what the audio describers had picked up in the work cool. and then the sound guy got so excited by the audio description it was embedded in the whole score yeah. of the work, like you just said. So it was just going like for the 15-minute yeah. dance work. That's I think that's the best sort of access, like accessibility in work. Like if it's 
baked in. Yeah, from it's the so very exciting. Yeah. It's just like this moment though of like realizing no one had heard it before. It was like this little secret that was mm. tucked away, and there was so much goodness in it. It was like this really beautiful exchange that happened yeah. of like hearing the way somebody sees the work yeah. Yeah. Um, that allowed a whole different point of another layer into the work. Wouldn't yeah. it be great if SEO descriptions could be pointers for audio descriptions somehow? One could point to the other. Because we put so much effort into our SEOs, you know. Uh, yeah. Group of interesting people sat, blah, blah, blah. And it's like half the work is done there for you. Yeah. Well, there are some, I mean, like a lot of vision impaired people use screen readers that will sort of pull from the captions of images. So if you're, say, if you upload something to the web, your website and you write, an image description that's in normal language, the screen reader can read it to someone. It's kind of like, is that kind of what you mean? Or? I mean, my, my SEO on my website is terrible. It's just like random keywords all together. But I'm like, only Google's going to see that, hopefully. <laughs> is that how it works? I don't really no. know. <laughs> Everyone's Googling right now. No, don't. <laughs> um, a lot of people know this, but my mum's an audio describer, so I hear a lot of her whining about things. But it is really like it's always at the end as well. Mm. Like she finds it really frustrating mm. that she's given such a short turnaround mm. to do this. And mm. quite often, like there was a recent one where the script kept changing as well during the season, which really affected her job. And she wasn't told about those changes. So it's like this thing like, it's so much better. Like, wouldn't it be great if you got to describe it, like, had a meeting even at some point yeah, during your development? Yeah. yeah. Just to kind of go, hey, this is me. This is what I need to do a good job. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, mm. yeah. And I don't know anyone's, so, sorry, I was late, but the Arts House now, you have like a fund that they do place in the, for anybody who does creative development, they bring those skills to the table. Mm. So when you're making new work at Arts House, you have those consultants and that way of thinking and that lens as you're making work. Yeah. Which is pretty cool and, and something you could put into your own application or in your new work if you want to skill build in that. I mean, yes, it costs more money, but it's a valuable consultant to have potentially. Yeah. I mean, I guess because I'm approaching it more from like visual than theatre, so I'm not saying that there isn't a place for... I'm not trying to get your mum out of a job. Oh, because she's a volunteer. Like, it's yeah. not that – she just wants the thing. But, yeah, and also just this – I'm really interested in audio describing, like, mum does this very, like, kind of dry and practical, what it is. And I think they have a really – like, she's got a great relationship with all the vision-impaired people here. They really love her. They love all of that stuff. But, like, I remember my brain being sparked about this idea of, like, poetic audio mm -hmm. description mm -hmm. and what that could be like and how mm -hmm. that's not what mum does at all mm -hmm. and it would struggle to move her away from that but yeah how do you create that poetry mm -hmm. for an audience member mm -hmm. well I think that that's mm -hmm. kind of what fan is yeah really exactly that is what you like exactly where's that poetry that. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. where's that yeah that rhythm and the meter for the work yeah yeah I don't really have anything else to say. Anyone got any questions or have I talked enough? You did spark an idea in me mm. on accessibility. And I was thinking about accessibility for animals as well. I was wondering if that's ever something you've thought about. 
for your dogs. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, why not have some beach art that's like for dogs? <laughs> like, they can yeah, go through. Music for dogs. Yeah. 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 I was at the sorry, I was so late too. I was at the talk by Sam and Hugo at Moore's Gallery. Really great, but yeah, awesome discussions about how Hugo started out recording dogs on his yeah. phone, and that's just gone down this amazing path through really good collaboration. Right. But there's all these I don't know if you talk to toddlers about dogs and stories, you'd have like they could they'd have a great discussion. But go to like serious adult arts rooms, and it's mm. harder to have that conversation. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, we just need toddlers to run mm. I mean, I'm, I'm not really a dog person. <laughs> yeah. My toddler is mean. You don't want her in your room. <laughs> I, I guess I was thinking more broadly than just dogs. But I thought dogs would be the easiest yeah. to kind of go with. But I, I, I guess the idea comes from, like, we recently had that amazing art in Kings Park with all the projection on the trees and all of this kind of stuff and lots of loud noises and heaps of crowds. And it's about the environment. But on the other hand, it's probably upsetting a lot of the animals that are there. Yep. So it's actually sort of displacing them and, and their space. So... I guess the idea of accessibility around non-human audiences would sort of maybe start yeah. to get some ideas as to how that... Are you talking guide dogs or just every dog? <laughs> any, native any dog, any animal. I know the work that you mean. Mm. I agree. But then there's also the... Like, how many people they reach through making a work like that and will it then... Will it then have like a knock-on effect with the audience, and they will then go home and think about something differently? So even though you've like made something that's probably not that sensitive in terms of light pollution and noise pollution and like heavy foot traffic to a local environment, will it actually have an like a net gain, mm. or will it be a net cost? You know, like and how do you weigh those things together? Like, do. Right. I think it's like work for the festival, know exactly what work you're, work, you're talking about, Buena One Janine, yeah, at <laughs> festival. But this, um, like, it's not an irrelevant conversation at the moment without saying anything more. But mm. um, but also, like, that was had strong Indigenous consultation as well, and the, like, they're the custodians of the land as well, like, and mm. how, yeah, you know, what, what is it that's the priority or what is it that we want to do and how do we reach those people through an embodied mm. experience? Mm. It's a really good question mm. without disturbing country. Kind of like um, Amy was talking about it with sustainability, kind of about looking at like your carbon footprint of like smaller works and being like, well, yeah, maybe your show has got quite a large carbon footprint, but actually that's kind of offset by the, amount the of value, the value yeah. of that show to that mm. one toddler, you know? <laughs> like, mm. that, that, yeah, how do we the measure of these things. That's kind of what I was thinking you were talking about. How do I make my work that is about the challenges of being a wheelchair user accessible to everyone? Mm. It's almost two sides of the same coin. Mm. And it, it's more of a comment, but when I work in an art space, the focus is very much on access and inclusion. And when I put on, say, my communication design or marketing hat, 
the the language is all around find your specific target audience demographic mm-hmm. and just make it amazing for a very narrow group of people mm-hmm. as opposed to the arts which is like try and capture and be inclusive they're just very different schools of thought about reaching audiences which we can't most work can't really do mm. can't do both yeah. can it actually do it so if your work was like i want to target um non-wheelchair users who perhaps feel very privileged and invincible and challenge those very specific people, I would say that that's a very valuable thing to contribute. Mm -hmm. And if it does mean that perhaps that work isn't as accessible to some other people, it's a choice that you have made, but for a good purpose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I hope that's kind of what I'm doing. Like, but it's... It's tough when you're doing it, you know, to mm-hmm. think because then you to think about those things because you, I do find myself thinking, well, fuck, I need to be more inclusive and like, am I gonna actually piss people off? <laughs> but at the same time, like you said, like it's not, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's just I'm t- being more specific with my targeting. Just want to piss the right people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess exclusions by systems is pretty different. Like I think sometimes we get in our own head and think I'm contributing to the systemic thing and we just get in all these thought loops. But I think about access over like a longer period and trying to get more people into the room earlier in the process. Mm -hmm. And so I think ultimately you only know, like you kind of have to live with it at the end of the day. Something... It just made me think about something else as well. So one thing I've been playing around with, with my work, is like putting in little Easter eggs, like gaming term, you know, so like little things that you find that maybe not everybody will find, but some people will understand it. And so what I'm trying to do, and I've start, I started around like pricing my work even, so like there'd be specific numbers that relate to dates and relate to statistics that I read all around disability and disability activism. And now I've started to go next, the next nerd level up and like <laughs> making the work that I make using some statistics and figures as the dimensions of the work. So then you might never know it. Like no, no one may never know that the sculpture that I've made, which is 1,992 millimeters long, actually uh, correlates to 1992, which is the year that the Disability Discrimination Act was in, first enacted in, in Australia. You know, so things like that. So like putting in putting in all these little, little tiny little Easter eggs and sort of referencing things that I think are important to myself and hopefully maybe the, the community more, more broadly and like using those as like little, I don't know, little interesting things that make people, hopefully make people think a bit. And I think I do it as well for myself so then when somebody asks me a question like, why the hell is that that long? Then I can have that conversation rather than and you're just going up to them and going, it's been 30 years since the Disability Discrimination Act was enacted. Why is this building still inaccessible? You know, like it's a, it's a bit of an in, and then hopefully it's, you know, to get wheels, wheels turning a little bit. Yeah, it just made me think of that, so I thought I'd share it. Good question as well of how we have the conversation and thinking about making mistakes and all of that. Um, 
it makes me wonder as well, like how um, so much of how we think about disability or how the broader non-disabled community especially thinks about disability is very much removing the disabled perspective. It's kind of looking at it from the outside in or thinking, let's get all of this perfectly right, but not always looking at what our own view of ourselves is. And I think that kind of thing, um, yeah, I'm curious about how that can sort of be disrupted in an art setting, especially where we have more um, access to, you know, um, doing work that is about kind of disruption and creativity. And um, yeah, my prefrontal cortex is quite slow today. <laughs> Can't remember where I'm going with that. But um, yeah, I just wanted to contribute that with some of the things that were said. So you're talking about the, like the idea of nothing about us without us, like that? That kind of thing. But I think also um, the, the way that disabled voices are kind of not really seen as something that can exist independently of non-disabled perspectives, like whether that's about the medical gaze, whether that's about the, the charity model of, of helping disabled people, but that going back into profiting how non-disabled people are viewed as saviors, like all of that is erasure of disabled voices. And um, whilst there might be disabled people present, it doesn't necessarily mean that our voices are actually being, um, you know, that there's a sense of us that's being built with the multiplicity of our perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know, like, that makes, what you're saying makes me think of the NDIS, as a lot of things do, and, like, I was talking to Matt about this the other day, like, there's lots of service providers for the NDIS, doing heaps of different stuff. I'm yet, and I, like, I don't engage that much with service providers on the NDIS, because I've got a terrible plan and it doesn't fund much, but I have friends that do, and... Um, they, anecdotally, they haven't come across any, anybody with a disability working at or owning any of these service providers. So it's like this whole industry has sprung up as like a middleman between the NDIS and, the disa and a disabled person that's like siphoning away some of the money and saying where it can be spent and how it can be spent. And it, that's like what you said, it kind of just makes me think of that. It's like there's, there's lots of barriers out there that are kind of like, it's, they almost seem like arbitrary, right? Yeah, like why, why aren't there service providers run by disabled people? Mm -hmm. Like why, why does it always seem to be the non-disabled people that are running these organisations? Yeah, yeah. Like, the thing that keeps dragging me away from this conversation is damn service providers. There are three of them involved in one project are massively complicating what is essentially a children's art club. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a bitch about that. <laughs> get it out. Let's get that out. <laughs> I think I keep hearing the language of capacity building and I heard the phrase like incrementalism or something where things can be going the right direction but slower than the pace of everything else. Like so, I guess it's a bit confusing to work out what's going on. But in terms of like working for some, yeah, working in this space a bit for some sort of like uh, not for profit, I guess. Um, there is kind of nice themes and messages around what the NDAA, especially under Bill Shorten, is trying to be more community engagement. There's talk of capacity building, but there's a lack of what is normal, normalised in the arts but having a bit of vision and saying, okay, when you say capacity building, 
can, what time frame do you mean? And do you just mean finding little pathways between the existing kind of higher education career things? But yeah, there's, there's a huge, I think there's massive potential of scope for, I guess, collective power to kind of come forward and say, I have choice and control. I guess this is kind of, I guess, from like the office worker perspective, there's all these nice phrases and concepts which can be some things you try and just kind of, yeah, kind of embrace, I guess, as, um, yeah, Bruno had some really interesting points to me chatting the other day about how we have artist-run initiatives, artist-run collectives, but if we had that with artists with disability, it'd be great. <laughs> you know, it's just almost just like what new ecosystems need to exist. Yeah. Or, and I think when you said there's this new industries popped up, I think, <coughs> I think it's happened really quickly. Yeah. And you've just got this mess of not wanting government systems to be bureaucratic, but not wanting a brutal open market. And so, yeah, I think big the big service providers have got a lot to answer for. For I guess just not investing in this space really. Yeah. Like I've got, like Rocky Bay was a service provider for me for a while and it took me two and a half years to get a new wheelchair through them, even though in the very first meeting I knew exactly what I wanted, I knew how big it was, I knew like all the, because they have to measure you with an occupational therapist and all that sort of stuff and it's quite invasive. Which, I, you know, I understand, but I was like, this is what I want and they kept trying to tell me that it was something different. And it took two and a half years for me to negotiate with, with them to actually get what I wanted with them saying, no, this is not right. This is not right for you. Like we, these people with these degrees know your body better than you do. Mm -hmm. and I'm not sitting there thinking, well, actually, I know exactly what I want, how it's going to be used and what's good for me, for my, uh, I'm borrowing a phrase from a scholar I know called Mar Mar Mariasa, and she said, it's not lived experience that you've got, it's lived expertise. And it's yeah. like the idea that you've got to this point and you know yourself so well, why is it then okay for somebody with a medical degree or whatever to tell you how you should do things and how you should live your life? Uh, and going back to what Matt was saying about like, these service providers not being the best. Like Rocky Bay were terrible through that process and they really made me feel like quite small and quite stupid and it ended up being, well, we're just going to give you what you want because you're too difficult to deal with. You know, like it was going to be punishment for me to actually get what I wanted, have my cake and eat it. And I got it and it, this chair and it's great. It's the best one I've had and it does exactly what I want because I specified it. But like I said, all through that process, it was like, battle after battle after battle after battle. And then I found out at the end, only because I was, so through NDIS you can either be self-managed or you can have like an agency manager plan, which is basically you get to control how your invoices are paid or parts of part of your plan pays another organization to do all your invoices for you, which I think costs about $5,000 a year which is a lot of money just to send yeah. invoices, right? Uh, anyway, so because I was managing myself, I found out that they charged my plan twice. Oh. 
for this for the equipment and I rang up and I was like what's this and like oh sorry it must have just been an administrative error and then I talked to a few other people that I know that had Rocky Bay as their surface provider I'm like oh yeah we had the same error as well we had to talk to them about it and it made me think what about all the people that aren't managing their finances themselves like has that all just gone through and then all that money's just disappeared from the big pool that the NDIS can pull from and then like extrapolate that out it's like how much more is being siphoned off and I, I think one of my issues with all these different service providers but mainly with the NDIS is that there's so many like stipulations about where you can spend the money and how you can spend the money and it seems like it's completely arbitrary what, what some person gets over somebody else like I know somebody who works at uh, like a wheelchair company and he said he was dealing with this client that kept getting everything. He had maybe like $200,000 worth of purchases through the NDIS and like all these expensive wheelchairs just going to shit in his garden. And then he said he had another client that had been waiting five years to get like the most basic of equipment for his home. And he just couldn't work out why there was such a difference there between these two people. They pretty much were like in the same area and had the same access needs but one was getting everything and one was getting absolutely nothing. I've got adults coming to the Creative Connections class they teach, the Living with a Disability class and they're there one week and then the next week they're either on the phone or at the door in tears because they just can't afford to come anymore because the NDIS has decided that it's not, just can't be, and I just, how, how does that happen? Just to, I just say, get your ass in here and pay, yeah. and we'll figure it out. It's now just organisation. I mean, that's not really, yeah, it's pretty sad. It's not really what we were talking about. But. I think this pattern of when the system doesn't seem fair, even, I've, I've heard that the, the largest category of people who've got plans approved, some of them all look like a $1 plan, they've got their plan approved through all these steps, and then they're not using it. Um, maybe they're keeping it open if they need it later, but apparently the, the giant, the demographic there the most is um, young people with autism. And I don't really know, I can't really speak for um, yeah, autism spectrum, but I think with at least my experiences like neurodiversity, when the system drains you to just even navigate these things, you just kind of try and just you just kind of give up a bit or you just like people might talk about building trust but when the system mm. feels just it's confusing disempowering. it's incredibly disempowering like yeah. distrusting a system is pretty hard to come back from so when you've got different institutions involved it's it's really hard i think maybe i don't know the idea of disability community run things is, is maybe one option that might actually work. It couldn't be worse, right? <laughs> I think this really is the elephant in the room in terms of like, you know, there was a term a few years ago, cultural accessibility, that I don't know if that's still sort of in usage. In, yeah, it's like the, the fact of being treated equally, um, you know, in social dynamics with disability and kind of that being an important part of, because like if you can get into the building, it's it's not going to make a difference if people are still not treating you mm -hmm. as equal. And I, I, I feel similarly. Like I think like the um, 
the barriers that artists with disabilities face to feeling safe and welcomed and equal and given trust to kind of take projects on and actually learn and upskill ourselves. Like I particularly see with when I started in the industry, I was able to um, hide a lot of my disabilities and so that meant I was getting treated with much less bias and I was able to actually excel my career much more than my peers who were starting at similar levels of, um, of creative practice and professional experience. but who were, were getting siloed much more quickly. Um, that I think is a much bigger issue in terms of like, not bigger, but it's it's there's more work to be done on it, I think, because it's not something that's really addressed as much as the physical accessibility kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. But that's the stuff that's more disabling than anything else. It's like the attitudes, right? It's not, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about disability. It's, you're not disabled because of any one thing, you're disabled because of people's response. And I think that's why I've been starting to use this phrase, the term disenabled rather than disabled, because, you know, like I don't see myself as, I don't see, I, I mean, like I don't see disability as a binary thing either. It's not like an either or, it's like a spectrum, right? And then when you think about it like that, it's like this, the idea of dis disability puts the onus on person and it puts like it's on my abilities right that they're not measuring up to whatever metric whereas disenabling it puts the onus on the person that I'm interacting with you know it's it's their attitude it's not my attitude and then disenabling is like that encompasses a much broader group as well you can think of any marginalized group as being disenabled it's not just disabled people. I think that's it. I have, thank sorry, you. Thank you. sorry. Yeah. one more question just about your practice and the funding of visual arts works. Is it you have to do a grant application process to enable you to make your work or do you make your work and hope a producer engages with it and picks it up because it's quite expensive to do these tunnels they sound expensive <laughs> they are yeah, yeah. Uh, both really like it depends like because I, I don't I don't just make experiential work I'll make work just for myself but I'll always like if I can apply for funding I'm going to apply for funding because like that money's there and it's like better odds than trying to win the lottery and you just all you have to do really is write an annoying application <laughs> which you know I'm a masochist so I'll, I'll write a bunch of annoying applications but yeah like so say the, the first tunnel work that I did that was made prim primarily off my own back because I hadn't any experience with that and I uh, I got funding for it but I got a city of I think I got a city of Melbourne arts grant for that and I think I applied for like 20,000 to make work and they gave me 15 and I spent it all and, but didn't pay myself anything from it and that I got lots of help and lots of volunteers whereas the Biennale work they approached me and I it was like the most dream joyous project because I didn't have to handle any of that budget stuff my producer did uh, Catherine Wilkinson she did all of that and just organized it and like paid me money I got paid <laughs> and I didn't have to then pay anybody else they did all that for me and look for sponsorship deals for materials but I think 
I was talking to her a couple of weeks ago about that budget because I realized at the end of it, I didn't have a figure. And then this organization over in Tasmania who want to do it next year, they were like, how much does it cost? And I'm like, uh. <laughs> I called Kat and she put a figure on it and then I was then able to talk to them. But I think, I think it'll probably change again. Mm. It's probably, hopefully it will be less, <laughs> but it could be more depending on what they want. And like best practice is one reference point and then worst practice of getting double charged for things <laughs> yeah. and having to remind them that that's not good. Yeah. And almost anticipating like some kind of making it right. Yeah. In stick away. But it's funny like trying to navigate. Like until you've had a really good experience like that, you don't really know what is possible, right? Mm. And the people like Catherine aren't going around doing big TED talks and you know like like the no, people that are really good like that are just doing it right so and I think it's tough as well because to make a big work like that you've it's almost like you've got to have made a big work before you can make a big work it's like this catch-22 like how do you do it if no one's gonna take a chance on you mm -hmm. but no one's gonna take a chance on you if you've not done it yeah like, I think all artists can relate to that yeah right it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and most of, of them have just been given a <laughs> yeah. magic moment. Yeah, yeah. It's luck, a lot of it, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't, like, it's not like I've got particularly great ideas. It's more that I've been fortunate enough to be pointed in the right direction by smart people. You You've know? also got great ideas. I've got ideas. <laughs> just going to say that. I've just got ideas. <laughs> some great, some shit. <laughs> I think that's all we've got time for, is it? Yeah. Unless anyone's got anything else? No? Brain's full. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Thanks. 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 Thanks.